music, news, interviews, live events, and more. Welcome to the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. Hey, it's Matt Pinfield, and it's the Hivecast. Of course, I'm coming to you from the Firefly Festival 2013 in Dover, Delaware, and I'm hanging out right now with Alex Ebert from Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. Alex, how are you, man? Good, man. It's good to see you, Matt. It's always great to see you. And I got turned on to you by a friend of mine who worked for Musicians Assistance Program, which is uh, was you know like Music Cares. Now they're folded into one another. But this le- you know legendary jazz musician Buddy Arnold, who helped out a lot of people, you know musicians we know, and even people that it, you didn't have to be have a record deal or be famous. You could just work yeah. some aspect of music. He helped a lot of people get treatment for alcohol and drug addiction, and he was amazing. So there was somebody who worked there who told me I had to check out your music when you started with I Am A Robot, which was great stuff. Yeah, so those were demos. I mean, or you know, back in those days, we were just recording. I didn't even really know about albums. You know what I mean? We just recorded. I loved it. I loved the name, and I thought it was just really cool. And his, your friend Reg gave it to me. Yeah. It was cool. Let's talk about your, your beginnings, because Alex, you know, you your dad really got you listening to music when you were a kid, right? Like a lot of country, classic country. Yeah, yeah, country soul. and yeah. Well, not so much soul. He would, but he would play country, sort of like you know Waylon Jennings type sort of. Country. Patsy Cline too, Patsy, Willie Nelson. A lot of Patsy Cline, um, and all the way up to sort of. Uh, uh, I was born around Emmylou Harris and. And then that mixed with two other things. It was kind of interesting. Very like powerful, epic, uh, new age music like Vangelis, that kind of thing. And then also classical music and opera. So I had those three sort of, those three elements were my primary sort of musical sort of infusions as a kid. Which is pretty amazing because you like cited as your influences, you know, like Beethoven, Pavarotti, you know, and as you said. People like Waylon Jennings with the high wind, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the the influence, I think, they, they gave me a sense of the, the, the complete picture of, a, of an artist in some senses where, where the poetry or of life, of human condition, where the poetry comes out so that the beauty is sad inherently because it's fleeting and so that everything sort of has this instant nostalgia while you're experiencing it because you have this instant sort of humility with regard to your place in the solar system or whatever it is and 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 that sort of i think is the basis of poetry and the poetic moment you know so like yeah those all that music definitely affected me in that way and as a little kid i'd be you know just staring out the window of the van while we'd be on a road trip and he'd be blasting this music and it would heighten this experience of sort of uh uh, mortality uh, and beauty and all those things. Yeah. It's amazing. So when when did you find yourself buying your first records and finding artists that you loved after all of that synthesis and the infusion of the stuff that your dad liked? What, what were some of the first things that really grabbed a hold of you that spoke to you? You know, for me, the first thing I remember, well, the, my, my favorite album that I remember having, uh, the first one, was the Stand By Me soundtrack. Um, and I learned all those songs and recorded them all. I was probably, I don't know, seven, six. And uh, there was that, and I loved that stuff. But the first time that I got involved in sort of like popular current culture, um, I saw a poster of Run DMC. And 
I didn't even need to hear the music. I just knew that I needed to find whatever that was because that was amazing. You know, I was about seven, eight. It's amazing. You know, and you, at one point you wanted to be a rapper, right? When you were young. I mean, I still love sort of incorporating the the cadences and and the, the sort of that sort of rapid fire sort of uh, delivery sort of thing, you know. And I'll do it from time to time, but. Yeah, I mean, to me, hip-hop was everything for about seven years. So. That's great. Who else other than Run DMC did you love? Did you like things like Public Enemy and, you know, I got LL Cool J and a lot of Def Jam stuff and the West Coast stuff like Drake? Everything. All, everything you just mentioned. Cypress? What's that? You like Cypress Hill? Uh, when Cypress first came out, it was, like, groundbreaking. And same with, you know, like, uh, Beastie Boys, uh, you know, License to Ill and before that. Um, Grandmaster Flash, the message things. Like that. Grandmaster Flash, I didn't get hip to until later because I, I, it was a little before my time. But uh, like my first real passion, rap-wise, I, I, oddly, was N.W.A. So I, anything to do with N.W.A., I sort of had memorized. Um, so everything off that first album, like Express Yourself, all yeah, those classics. Uh, all those songs, yeah. And then also on the Easy E's solo album. You know, I'm I'm what I was I was ten, and uh, Christian, who's in our band, he remembers me. We were at a camp a camp out like a field trip, and we we're all sitting in sleeping bags by a fire, and and you weren't allowed to really have music with you. But I had snuck in the Easy E's, Easy Does It, and uh, and was singing, sort of singing them all around the campfire of the song. Uh, so I was I was just severely into rap and uh, and for me there was a golden era which was around between ninety and ninety three and it was a very West Coast based although there was stuff like um, Mob Deep and stuff that was uh, part of the canon to me uh, and of course Tribe Called Quest De La Soul and um, Far you know, Side things like that. Far and side. then you get into the West Coast stuff and you get into the Far Side and far, the Far that Far Side album is still one of the best albums ever made to me. Yeah, Running is like one of my favorite songs. I love that track so much. Yeah, that song's great. That song's great, yeah. I mean, I just found myself playing that over and over in my car when I came out. Now, what about the whole the Aftermath stuff? Did you love Dre, Snoop, and things like that? Yeah, I mean, uh, when Dre, when The Chronic came out, it sort of was, uh, if The Chronic to me was a great album, but it also signified the end of the sort of storytelling and uh, and the beginning of much more of the um, the sort of more lifestyle rap where it's about like what I smoke what I drink and what I wear and you know and all that kind of thing and so I definitely knew that the the album was great I loved the album uh, but it also signified and, and heralded the downfall for me of the art of hip hop, like where like, was it? Yeah, like you mean like De La Soul Tribe and things exactly. like that. Some sort of thinking man's farce. Yeah, the thinking man's sort of what people ended up calling backpack hip hop. Uh, but I love that stuff. It's some of my favorite. That stuff is the. It's more soulful, you know, to me. And and all basically everything everything mainstream that's followed, you know, has been, I don't know, just just infused with that. With that idea of like you know um, that the storytelling and the and the sort of the lack of a murderous edge uh, doesn't somehow qualify as hip hop, and uh, and that's a you know that that was a shame for me and and eventually made me sort of uh, disinterested you know. I mean, I, there were a lot of people that felt that way and, and loved that golden age. 
They really do because, I mean, the songs, you know, it was also about, you know, being socially conscious, too, about what was happening around you, you know? And Public Enemy were one of those bands, too. Yeah, I mean, Public Enemy were early for the, you know, I mean, they were like the some of the first to really, although Grandmaster Flash, the message, I mean, that was a great message. the very first record that wasn't, like, you know, where Curtis Blow was doing basketball on the breaks. You know, when I heard the message the first time, I was blown away by listening to it. I had to play it over and over. It's still, it's still one of the most potent, you know, descriptions of city life and sort of dejected sort of city life. And, and uh, yeah, you just don't, you don't hear that much these days without the, the rapper assessing the situation similarly and then saying, I'm the king of this situation. Whereas Grandmaster Flash, what, you know, he was just describing and he's telling a story that's, that's sort of uh, the lost part of the art to me is that, you know, rappers don't feel like they can't inject themselves as the hero of every story. <laughs> you know, it's a funny story. You hear about Purple Rain when the original script was there. What Prince's original idea was when he met with the guy who wrote it. The guy said to him, they were in a car together, and Prince just went, he went to Prince, Prince, there's no movie here. Everything's perfect. You're perfect here. He goes, this is not a movie. You got to flaunt the imperfections. You've got to talk about the things that make you human. You know, this, this, this short-sighted, you know, the thing that make, you know, your wounds, everything. And that's the, I agree. I mean, I think I'd like to hear more of that, yeah. you know? Yeah, absolutely, it's man. It's been a long time. It's been a long time. I remember when... When actually, when Fat Lip from the Far Side came out with a solo album about four years or so after the Far Side sort of split, and he did a song called, um, oh shit, what was it called? But anyway, the, the gist of the song, it's actually a really good song, but the gist of the song was basically that, like, um, oh, hi, here's the chorus Who am I kid and who am I fool? And when people say, yo, what's up, Fat Lip? And I say, cool. And who am I kid and who am I? So it was just about being depressed, basically. And it, it totally flopped because people weren't really ready or didn't want that whole like self-aggrandizement had completely taken over hip-hop and no one wanted to hear anything real, you know? And it's sort of a shame. But I think it's starting to come back a bit. You, you, you hear a bit more of the sort of real stuff. And, um, Anybody in particular that you're liking that you've heard recently? I, no, I'd hold off on that. I, I, don't, I don't think it's quite there for me yet. Um, but... Uh, you know the other the other thing is I miss samples. You know, so as soon as we yeah, like the samples, like it was great talking about like great samples, like Tribe Called Quest using uh, and Can I Kick It using Walk on the Wild Side or De La Soul using Peg by Steely Dan for um, you know um, I know you know what I mean on Three Foot High and Rising. You know what I mean, or even Ice T when he used uh, James Brown and you played yourself. You know things like that. All those samples and also the great like you know. I mean, the Wu-Tang album, when it came out, I, I actually was like, oh, wow, hip-hop's back for a little while. You know? That first album was amazing. Album. Yeah, and it was like very heavily like sample-based, and it was cool because you didn't know where the hell those samples were from, and so then you want to go find them and, you know, and, and listen to the original. And Yeah, so for, for a second, you know, hip-hop was definitely back to me, and then, uh, but for some reason that didn't quite spread the way I was hoping it would, you know. That is a classic record now, though, and they are... Doing shows where they're doing the Return of Thirst Chambers. Yeah, yeah, they're doing shows. Yeah, I'm excited to hear the new album. Yeah, it'll be very cool. It's the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. So tell me about, you know, I know about I Am a Robot, but I got to talk to you about forming 
Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. I know that, you know, at the time you had your own personal issues going on, like I've had them too, and we dealt with our own struggles. And um, you, you decided to write this novel, and it was a character, Edward Sharp, in that, right? Yeah, the character just randomly plucked that name out of whatever, and then uh, the character sort of, well, there was there were several storylines. One, at the time I was dealing with the idea that, you know, um, he was sent on uh, to Earth to sort of, to save the world, but he kept falling in love and getting distracted, and so that... Sounds like every, a lot of people's problems, whether you're an alien or you're a human being, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a little, it's a very little talked about uh, subject. The idea is usually that, that love is what saves, um, saves the world, although, you know, occasionally in Superman or Batman, they're like, you know, they have to forego the love so that they can sort of stay true to the the proposition of saving humanity, but um, so it was a bit of a, a tra you know a comedy, but um, save the world, lose the girl. Yeah, yeah. But the the cool thing was that he could see strings, and the strings theory sort of started working its way into it. So the mathematics, I started getting into physics through it, and uh, and then just sort of messing around with plans of mathematics and came up with this idea of magnetic zeros and then I just put the two names together and started a, a MySpace page so thanks MySpace. And that's where it was so, and then you found Jade yeah. and you were hanging out in a house in like Laurel Canyon right? Exactly. You know yeah. Laurel Canyon what a place for um, you know how many things have kind of brewed there like Crosby Stills and Nash all met at Mama Cass's house back in the day so there's something magical going on in the hills right? Oh definitely definitely I mean that's my favorite place in LA uh, to you know and uh, yeah, we we met up, and you know, the I started writing music, but the band hadn't formed yet. Uh, uh, Christian was coming around it again. You know, I, we'd been friends since we were three, and uh, he came around, was playing guitar on stuff, and and then JD and I were hanging out, and you know, like uh, we were telling you the story the other day, I'd written the music to home, and I was the way I remember it, I was just trying. I had the mic in my hand, I was just about to start messing with vocals and I might have come up with a little bit of a melody da 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 but I just remember Jade popping up out of nowhere and grabbing the microphone like let me see the mic and she just starts singing Alabama Arkansas I do love my mom and pa not the way that I do love you and just like um, I, I remember just being shocked like where the hell did you get that and why Alabama Arkansas how'd you where'd you get this from and she, I still don't know where she got it from but uh but just one of those moments of inspiration. And we really hadn't sung together before that. So it was cool, man. It was amazing because, you know, the first time I heard that song and then I saw you guys perform it live at Webster Hall, uh, I was blown away. It just sounds like it could have, it's, it sounds right now, but it also sounds like it could have came out any time. There's a classicness to it. You know, like, and what, the way she sings, blow, it just blows me away. It sounds like it could have been recorded in, like, the... 50s or 40s like it's just you know it's kind of there's something about it. yeah no I, I love it man I mean you know I mean I, that song is so uplifting yeah. I, I mean I'll never get tired of it it's one of those songs that I've never ever gotten sick of and won't uh, apparently it's one of those songs I mean it just keeps growing and and being this you know it didn't have a radio blitz or anything like that it's not like it, I mean I played the hell out of it in Southern right. Station. But like it didn't cross over whatever they say, you know. But what's cool is that it was it's it's a cultural hit. It's like a, a just a thing people know, and uh, you know we love playing it still. And we've gone through our own, you know, like we were best friends when we wrote it, and then we got 
you know, as they say, romantically involved, and that was lasted about a year, and then we had to go through a process of becoming friends again. While you're touring and on the road in very close quarters. Yeah, very difficult stuff. But um, I mean, it's like you know the classic Fleetwood Mac story, but it's been happening for years, where people are like, because of the, the success or the creative thing that's going on in their lives, their their work, they're forced to be together while they're going through all these things and working their way through the grieving of a relationship that is either ending or changing. Yeah, I mean, thank God I loved her so much that it didn't, you know, because I'm sure both of us had considered walking away many times. But yeah, I mean, and you know, and it wasn't like we were wildly successful or to that sort of degree that it was like oh well this is our bread and butter or something but it was a belief in our friendship and in our love and in the band and in the music that sort of pulled us through certainly pulled me through and allowed me to sort of um, bear it and uh, and look for that sort of uh, that silver lining that you know eventually came and now we're you know great friends again thank God and so when we sing that song to each other it's got a it's got its original meaning back, actually, which is sort of nice. Yeah, original meaning, and it's just and it's even more. It's like an everlasting thing now, yeah. which is great. Um, tell me about the, how the rest of the members of the band became into the band, because to build a band that is a members of eleven to thirteen, what was that process like? Was it kind of the music was written? You're picking up and meeting friends and going, "You want to try this?" Or did you envision certain things being played by different people? Tell me. about it. I mean, I, I had, you know, I'd written the music for a lot of people. I, there was horn parts and piano parts and, um, and you know, an organ part. So, so instruments that aren't necessarily in a in a regular setup, uh, and a lot of background vocals and a lot of swashling on sort of on tambourines and percussion. So, I guess the music really probably is what uh, attracted everyone uh, in every way, and and also of course just it's every sort of child's dream in some ways, or at least it was mine, to have a posse and to have that posse be r rather large and uh, to... Rolling with all your friends, rolling right? With the, rolling with your homies. And, and you know, so the, the proposition of music that would house all of us, um, that we could inhabit all together, I think is what attracted everyone into the band. and. You know, and there was also just this, this thing bubbling up around then, which was a really special time, uh, especially in, you know, in Echo Park and, and Laurel Canyon. And, and it was this sort of communal, sort of tribalistic, sort of uh, experimental uh, couple years there. And, uh, you know, when I bought a bus, for instance, and it was just, we gutted it out and took a trip to Marfa, Texas. That was our first trip together. And, so you actually bought like an old an old bus, and yeah. what did you do? Change it so that it would work for you to take all your equipment and seats. Yeah, I mean, what kind of bus was it? Was it a tour bus or like an actual charter bus? Like, uh, it was like a American Eagle. So it was like a yeah, it's like a, a charter type bus. I got it for like nine grand on on Craigslist. You Very know? cool. Where'd you buy it from? Where where did they sell it? In California? Yeah, she so she was from uh, she had it stored in Ontario, uh, California, but she was in. South Central and great girl named Pam. She sold it to me. She had been the, you know, working the bus. But you know, you couldn't start it from the front. You had to go around to the back and do a sort of rigmarole and push this button. <laughs> and uh, you know, and sometimes it wouldn't start, and we'd have to sort of pray, and sort of pray for it to start. And but uh, but I think it was just the idea that uh, of like um, same with the train tour. You know, with Mumford, it it, it was the 
the vision and sort of the, the impetus of a child to get a bus and go with all your friends on an adventure that you're not sure how it's going to turn out. And, and so that's what we did. And I think that all that, you know, the adventure of it, uh, to me, is what it, um, is the big attractor. Like, just rolling around with all your friends having an adventure, you know. And it's like the Lewis and Clark expedition. Yeah. Not knowing where you're, going, where you're going, but knowing that you're with a group of people. And yeah. you're, you're on an adventure yeah. for the unknown in a lot yeah, of ways. Yeah, and you have the faith, you know, you have that faith. You have a fuzzy idea of where it's going, and you just yeah. go for it. I think it's great. So tell me about how that whole Mumford, Old Crow Medicine show thing came down. Did they become fans of yours? Did you end up on a bill together? And you guys said, maybe we should do something like this? Tell us the yeah, story. Yeah, we, we, we ended up on a couple bills together, us and Mumford. And I guess us and Old Crow were on a bill together in Australia. But um, I think that we just had a hunch. You know, Mumford's first album came out just, I think, two months before our first album. And so we would always be... Oh, we were always aware of them. Um, and then in Telluride, we were on a, a bluegrass festival together. And they were really cool, and we just were, you know, having a good time. And um, and so I think we just kind of got to thinking about putting together, you know, it was actually our, our camp who had come up with this idea to do this train thing. And then Brian, our manager, sort of, took the ball and started running with it and it was a lot to put together and so we I believe we approached Mumford and then Mumford uh, thought that Old Crow would be a great addition and, and so we all just uh, agreed on it and went for it yeah. what, was some, what were some of the most memorable moments of doing that? I mean I know there's a documented movie, there's a DVD out there you can actually see it on demand as well I think on Showtime or HBO one of them, but maybe it's Showtime but the idea, what were some of the most memorable moments you remember about that Oh man, there's so many like just crazily cinematic memories floating around in my head from all that. Um, you know, at one point we were in in Austin and Austin and put pianos everywhere, and we had all filed off the train and started just you know we were just camped out on this river in Austin playing piano through I don't know the twilights and um, and just being on the train and, and you know, the, the night, it's in the movie actually where uh, it was like the last night before we got to New Orleans, I think, and the sun was coming up and we're finishing up the writing of, uh, of a song uh, called Train in the Sky that sort of I was writing about. Um, and then we were writing about the, uh, the experience of being on the train, you know. Because it eventually turned into and snowballed into a really emotional time. You know, it was just like, it was just so dreamy that at the end of it, you know, I just started crying when, when a, a Jenny from Rolling Stone asked me how I felt. And I didn't see it coming and I just was like overwhelmed and I just sort of started bawling. It was, it was a pretty awesome experience and definitely bonded us to those bands for life. And uh, it's, it's amazing. It was an incredible thing. It was a great idea. And the joy I saw when you guys, all three of you were all playing together and jamming, we were, we ran that part of it a clip for the first O Music Awards the online music awards we were in Vegas and um, I remember seeing the footage on the monitors and it, was just, it just blew me away I was like this is, I, I just wanted to be there you know I think anybody watching wanted to be there to experience to feel it you know what I mean that's good that's good yeah I mean you know watching the movie myself it's you know I was actually there so it's like but it's still so nice to have this like there's a shot of us playing in Austin actually and it was getting to be sunset in this cloud formation that looked like just this magic mountain 
in the sky just developed and it's just this beautiful gigantic sort of collage and kaleidoscope and and so we have that captured and it's amazing to have you know it's incredible so the third album is coming out in about a month it's self-titled right yeah third album is coming out july 23rd Perfect. It's so good to see you. I just wanted to tell you, Alex, and I want everybody to pick up all three of the records are great. Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. You have a solo record as well that came out a couple years back. Yep, solo record just called Alexander. Uh, We play some of those songs from that solo record quite a bit, uh, so it's nice. That's great. I didn't have a chance to tour it, so we get to sort of play some of those songs here. And you did do a third I Am A Robot record, too. Yeah, we did. It's called Another Man's Treasure. It's just sort of... The title sort of explained it. It was just sort of pieces that we had found and sort of threw together. But there's some really good stuff on there, yeah. You know what one of my favorite song titles is of, of one of the uh, I'm a Robot songs? is creeps me out. I love that title. It's just, it's one of those expressions, you know, that you when you hear it, you think of something, you know, it's just yeah. a great title. Yeah. Great song, too. Yeah, it was a good, those were good times. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thanks for doing this, Alex. I appreciate it. Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. It's Alex, and I'm Matt Pinfield, and that's the Hivecast coming to you from Dover, Delaware, Firefly Festival. This has been the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. For all things music, news, interviews, live events, and more, go to mtvhive.com.